Friends, our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. This is the word of the Lord. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boats and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boats, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. Indeed, the kids and I, just returned from a time of vacation this week. We are thankful for the time that you provided for us for rest and recreation. We had a sweet time with family and friends in Louisville, Kentucky. We attempted to hike in uh, Black Mountain, North Carolina, but that didn't happen. Uh, we were able to go to Williamstown, Kentucky, visit the Ark Encounter, which was a great encouragement if you haven't gone to the Ark Encounter or to the Creationist Museum and you are able to, you should. Some of you have asked if we were able to rest. My response, have you ever gone on vacation with children? So we rested when we returned. This theme of rest has permeated this section of the Gospel of Mark, we saw in our previous passage that Jesus sought to give his disciples rest by withdrawing from the crowds with them. He wanted them to eat with leisure and enjoyment. A right balance between work and rest is God's design for us. We see that in our seven-day week. In our fast-paced life, results-driven culture, we can tend to think that work is divine, but rest is of the devil. But nothing could be further from the truth. We work for the glory of God, and we rest for the glory of God. Some of you have told me that this 
understanding of rest is new to you. That's great. We need the Bible to inform every aspect of our lives, including how we think of rest. Some of you have confessed to me that sometimes you take a nap. That's great. Praise God. Take naps for the glory of God. And if that is a far-fetched thought for you, friends, there is much that you need to learn about God. He provides for his beloved sleep. But it is important for us to know that Jesus cares about our well-being. Jesus does not care that we simply produce, that we get results. That's not why Jesus calls us to himself. Jesus calls us to himself because he wants us to flourish. And that includes production and rest. Jesus cares that we thrive in life. He tells us that he didn't come us just to give us life, but he came to give us life more abundantly. Christians don't just get by in life. Christians flourish in life. In our text today, we see Jesus promoting this abundant life. We see Jesus promoting this flourishing life. Again, we come to a Sunday school favorite, right? Mark is filled with stories that we often teach our children in family devotionals and in Sunday school. But today's miracle is a bit unique in the sense that this miracle was not done necessarily for the good of others. Jesus often heals, feeds, delivers. But here, he simply walks on water clearly not a normal eat not a common sight not something that any mere mortal can do so what is the purpose of this miracle why does jesus walk on water and why is this so important that mark actually tells us about this event Again, we benefit so much from our sequential preaching through the Gospel of Mark. If, if this is your first time with us, we, in May, uh, we're going to complete one year in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through it slowly, systematically, because we want to understand not just what select passages of Mark tell us, we want to understand the whole thing, the whole story. So if this was a standalone sermon, if I was just coming to you and preaching to you about Jesus walking on water, we would have no context to understand Mark's full arguments. And this is why so often people weave themselves into the biblical narrative in an unhelpful way. Some may think, oh, here's the point of this miracle. If Jesus walked on water, that means... I can walk on water. If nothing is impossible for Jesus, nothing will be impossible for me. But I think, I think Mark is trying to tell us something completely different from this. I think that Mark is making the opposite point. 
Mark is not saying that we are like Jesus. That if Jesus can do this, therefore we can do this as well. Mark is actually telling that we are not like Jesus. Mark is actually telling us to identify here not with Jesus, but with his disciples. And his disciples, when they see Jesus, they fear. They believe they were seeing a ghost. They did not believe. That's who we are. We struggle to trust the Lord. We struggle to believe he is who he says he is. And he has done what he's done. He says he's done. This is the picture. This is who we are. Mark here is trying to help us understand who Jesus is. Mark is trying to help us grasp the identity of Christ. And this is the point of Mark's gospel. Remember, the opening verse in Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us in the first verse who Jesus is, and then he spends the entire gospel unpacking what that means. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is by nature God, Therefore, he can accomplish even that which is impossible for men. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is Lord over all. And here is what's encouraging in our story for today. The Jesus who is Lord over all also cares for all. This is so much better than us being able to do that which is impossible. He who is God, who is Lord over all, who is all-powerful, cares about you. He knows your needs. He knows your frame. He knows the burdens you're carrying in this place this morning. He cares. Jesus helps all. We're going to see this in our passage today. Jesus helps all who come to him in need. So for us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, we need to take courage in the fact that we're deeply known by God who is able to help us in our greatest distress. God never forgets those who are his. And friend, if you're not a Christian here with us, today you're given an opportunity to know Jesus. Better, today you're given an opportunity to be known by Jesus. As a matter of fact, you're here today because Jesus wanted you to be here. He wants to make himself known to you. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he doesn't want you to just get by in life. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to have purpose. He wants you to have direction. He wants you to have hope. And this is what Mark offers you today. He offers you hope in Christ. So as we look at our text today, we'll see three things. We'll see that Jesus cares for his own soul. 
Then we're going to see that Jesus cares for his disciples. And then finally, we're going to see that Jesus cares for all who come to him. So first, let's consider Jesus cares for his own soul. In our last passage, we saw Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And that's 5,000 men, not including women and children. There were likely at least 15,000 people in that miracle. The feeding of the 5,000 along with the resurrection of Christ are the only two miracles that are recorded in all four gospels. Certainly one of the most important and powerful, impactful events in the life of Jesus. In light of success, we would probably expect that Jesus would capitalize on the opportunity. Now is the time to make this ministry grow. Jesus, advance your agenda now that the momentum has turned in your favor. Jesus, just ride this wave. But Jesus wasn't on board with this plan. Instead, look at what he does in verse 45. He immediately, after the miracle, sends his disciples away and dismisses the crowd. Well, this is anticlimactic, isn't it? Now, why does he do that? Mark doesn't really tell us why he does that. But the other gospel, the gospel of John, helps us understand a little bit further. John 6, 15, uh, John tells us, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. But of course, the crowd wanted to make Jesus king. He had fed them. He had healed their sick. He had resurrected their dead. He had shown them power. Miraculous power. Their immediate needs were met. This has to be the guy that is now going to deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. This has to be our king. But Jesus wasn't swayed by popularity. He wasn't swayed by power or prestige. Jesus was able to discern the voice of the Father in the midst of the voice of the crowd. Jesus was not interested in following the crowd's plans for his ministry. Instead, he kept his focus on the Father's plan. Friends, we, we don't decide what we do according to popular opinion or majority opinion of unregenerate hearts. We don't dictate our ministry according to what the world wants us to do or the direction that unbelievers want us to go. No, friends, like Jesus, we seek the will of the Father. And what is the plan of the Father for Jesus' life? Not that the crowds would make him king, but the Father himself would crown the Son. And that time had not yet come. Psalm 2, 6, As for me, 
the Father is speaking of the Son. This is that great Psalm 2, right? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus' kingship comes from the Father, not from the crowds. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, this is the Father speaking to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what does Jesus do in light of these conflicting plans, in light of the crowd versus the Father? What should we do when the voice of the world speaks contrary to the voice of God? Jesus dismisses the voice of the world. And he heads to the mountain alone to hear the voice of the Father. He goes to the Father. Back in chapter 1, we saw Jesus praying early in the morning, following a day filled with teaching, healing, and exorcism. Today, we see him praying again, this time late at night following one of his greatest miracles, we'll see Jesus praying one more time at a garden later on in this gospel. I think one interesting observation here is that we often think of prayer as a resource that we have when we are experiencing defeat, need. But Jesus prioritizes prayer in light of victory. The two times that we have seen Jesus praying here, they were following great times of ministerial success. Jesus prays in light of success. Do we view prayer the same way? Do we rush to pray when we receive that which we want? In Brazil, we traditionally observe a New Year's service at church. We come together. And we sing together. We encourage one another in the word. And as we approach midnight, we start praying. The goal is to finish one year praying and start the following year on our knees. Praying. It's a statement to remind us of our utter dependence on God. I remember one time talking to my mom about this tradition. I asked her, Mom, wouldn't it be better if we started the year celebrating rather than praying? Wouldn't it be better if we did, like everyone else, through a party and lit up fireworks rather than praying? And my mom wisely redirected my thoughts. She said, there's no better way to celebrate a new year than to start the year on our knees, thanking God for such a blessing. In my mind, there was a dissonance between prayer and celebration. We pray when we need something, but when we celebrate, we don't need prayer. And with this mentality, we forget that victory comes from the Lord. Friends, we are often most vulnerable when we think that things are going our, our way and therefore we go celebrate and forget to come to the Lord. 
Jesus healed the ten lepers. Nine of them went to celebrate, one returned to give thanks. When we are successful, we believe our plans are better than God's. Listen to the admonishment that God gives to Israel in Deuteronomy 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord, the Lord your God, by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, what is this? Success, a picture of success, right? And have built good houses and live in them, <coughs> and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. What is that? A picture of pride. And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Friends, our tendency is to forget and not to remember God. By nature, we stray. We must fight to remember all his benefits. So we must fight to remember that the Lord is our victory. This should inform our prayer life, shouldn't it? This should inform the way we approach the Lord in prayer. And it should do so privately, but it should also inform our prayer lives corporately. All that our prayer meetings would not be filled with simply a time to present requests but a time to celebrate the victory of the Lamb. Oh, that our praise reports would largely outnumber our requests. Because, friends, in Christ, we lack nothing. We must learn from Christ. Now, let's turn from Jesus caring for his own soul and let us consider Jesus' care for his disciples. Notice here that at this point, Jesus turns from prayer to his disciples. He is on the mountain, but he has sent his disciples away into the sea, off to a city called Bethsaida, a city just north of the Sea of Galilee on the Jordan River. Now, as Jesus looks down, he sees their struggle against the raging sea again. It's a common theme that we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. Once again, the disciples are fighting this raging sea. But now, now it's harder because Jesus is not in the boat. Before, at least, Jesus was in the boat with us. He was asleep, but he was there. We could run to him, but we can't run to Jesus. Now, he is not there. These men were not rookies at this. These were fishermen who grew up around this lake. They knew this lake like the back of their hands. And yet again, they're struggling against the waters. This struggle is not because of their lack of ability or inexperience. This struggle is not a result of their disobedience either. They did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Friends, this struggle that they're going through is a God-appointed struggle. And notice also that although the disciples are struggling in the boat, 
Jesus does not immediately deliver them from their troubles. Jesus' care for his disciples included the strengthening of their faith and character through trials. Honestly, the, the picture that Mark is painting is one of an overwhelming ministry for the disciples. This has to be an exhausting journey so far. Every time they try to withdraw for a rest, there's trouble at sea, there are crowds surrounding them, there's persecution, there's oppression, there's opposition. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in our passage for today, the word immediately was used three times. It's just an unending sequence of events. Life can get like this sometimes, can't it? We might be walking with the Lord, faithfully serving Him, faithfully involved with our church life, trying to raise our children to know Him, trying to be a good witness of Him at our workplace, to our family. And suddenly, we're faced with what can only be described as a tragedy. Great, deep affliction. Why does the righteous suffer? Or sometimes it could seem like we simply can't catch a break. It's one thing after another. Finances are difficult. Job feels like a burden. Family, children are just adding to the pressures. And the Lord who could lift my burden immediately seems to be watching from afar unengaged, uninvolved, uninterested in my suffering. Sometimes it does feel like we're living out the old Wesleyan hymn that says, Yea, more of his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I skimmed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Sometimes it feels like the book of Job should be written with our names. But friends, if today you are afflicted, remember this. God is more concerned with our holiness than with our comfort. God never brings afflictions to our lives without purpose. God wants us to know Him through affliction and not forget him through prosperity. Psalm 19, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. God is not idle in the midst of our trials. The jargon that God does not give us more than we can handle is cultural Christianity at its best. God will always give us more than we can handle so that we learn to rely on His strength alone. Notice what happens at verse 48. At the fourth watch of the night, okay, this is late, which is just a side note here. It's amazing how, how, how disciplined 
and how perseverant Jesus was in prayer, right? Because this, at the fourth watch of the night, this is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus comes. Jesus comes. And this is our great hope in light of every suffering in life. Jesus always comes for the aid of those who are His. The vision may delay. It may seem like Jesus is idle, but He is not. We may not be in a boat in the middle of a turbulent sea, but we are in the middle of a turbulent world. But we take heart, friends, because... Three times in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we hear from Jesus himself, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And that means that our tribulations will come to an end. But notice also here that Jesus comes for those who are his, even through supernatural means. The disciples were in a boat, separated from Jesus by a body of water. Before they could come to Jesus, because Jesus was asleep in the boat, but now he's not there. Jesus doesn't have a boat, but he doesn't need one. Jesus created water so he can do whatever he wants with water. He can turn it into wine, and he can walk on it. It is his. When the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, it, really, it literally really means nothing. What a picture of this reality we see here. The disciples can't do anything to save themselves, but their Savior comes for them. This is what it means to be inseparable from the love of Christ. I think it's interesting that in this account, Mark tells us that Jesus intended to overtake the disciples. They're moving too slow. Jesus is able to move faster as he walks on water. I think there's a ton of, ton of irony in what Jesus is doing. I can almost see a smirk on Jesus' face as he walks by the disciples, kind of like the smirk I get when I'm driving my 16-year-old Honda down the streets and the guy in the brand-new Lexus overtakes me. I think that's what Jesus is doing. I, I think Jesus is saying, this boat is nothing but a clunker. I'm much better than your boat. And sometimes we forget that Jesus created humor. So he uses it in a great way. But the disciples don't see the humor. They miss it. Instead, instead of enjoying a moment of relaxation, they respond with what? They respond with fear. When they see Jesus, they think that he's a ghost. Perhaps it's not surprising they fear, after all, it's not every day that you see somebody walking on water. But ultimately, we're told why they fear. 
They feared because their hearts were hardened. They were still puzzled by the events of the night before. They didn't understand the point of the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the fish. They didn't understand what it meant that Jesus had done that. But what was the point of that miracle? What was the point of the multiplication of the bread and fish? It is the point that Mark has been making all along in his gospel. Jesus is God and he cares for his own. Jesus is God and he cares for his own. Now, in light of this, it is surprising that the disciples feared. They had been with Jesus for so long. They had seen his divine power, received power from him. They had just seen that Jesus was able to do anything he wanted. And Jesus would go to great lengths to provide for his disciples. He reminded them, I will always provide for you. And yet, their hearts were hardened. Now, before we start judging the disciples too much here on the hardness of their hearts, I think Mark wants us to instead identify with the disciples and recognize that we often, too, struggle to believe the goodness and kindness of the Lord towards us. Do you ever compare yourself with others and resent the Lord? Do you ever see others as more successful than you and wonder why the Lord has not given you that success? Do you ever resent the level of intelligence that the Lord has given you or your finances? Do you ever wish that the Lord had given you different life circumstances? Do you ever resent your spouse or your children and wish they were not such a burden on you? Do you ever grumble about your work, your house, your bank account, your health? Friends, had the Lord not given us afflictions, we would forget him. But our weakness is a constant reminder that we need the Lord. The disciples' surprise is actually encouraging to us because we too need to be reminded that we need Christ. Before Indy and I had children, we were able to tra travel and enjoy life in a different way that we enjoy life today. One time, one of Indy's friends told her, when I see pictures of your vacations, which were never extravagant, believe me, but we we're able to, to take vacation and travel, I long to have the experiences you have as well. But I can't have them because I have children. But isn't it interesting that that was the very thing that we desired? Uh, th that impediments for her to enjoy her life like we enjoyed our lives was the very thing that we would trade all of our vacations 
all of our traveling for. Now, can I be honest? And I have to say sorry to my children here first. Sorry, Boaz. Sorry, Elise. But there's a little bit of us that misses those days. And honestly, friends, we're often just so dissatisfied, aren't we? We long for something, and when we get that which we long for, we miss that which we had because we start thinking that that was best. Isn't that what the Lord just said about Israel? Don't miss Egypt, right? Don't think that in Egypt the leeks and the onions and the garlic were special. Because the bricks that you were building were by no means for your good. You see, nostalgia is dangerous, isn't it? We, we tend to think nostalgically about the past, about how we used to be, about how our church used to be, about how our marriage used to be, our relationship with our children used to be, about how our country used to be. And we tend to think that things were just so perfect back then because we tend to remember the good things and forget the hardships. Nostalgia can be so sweet. But friends, we cannot look at our current circumstances and think if we could just go back five years, 15 years, 50 years, things would be all right. No, friends. That is deceptive and blinding. We look forward because the promises of God are much greater than any experience that we've had in the past. This is what God is telling Israel. Sure, you experienced a few, thing, a few good things in Egypt, but my promised land is so much better. Sure, sure, you've experienced a few good things in your life, but eternal life in my presence, in the place that I'm preparing for you, is so much better. Friends, do not try to reconstruct history. History is pointing us forward to the consummation of all things. Heaven will be so much better. Let's long for that. Let's walk forward at all times. Let us not be dissatisfied because we know that at a, po at a point we'll experience every pleasure at the right hand of God. We must fight for satisfaction today if we know that the Lord gives blessing and burdens for our good and for His glory, knowing that one day burdens will be no more. Finally, let's turn to our last point for today. Jesus cares for all who come to Him. The last few verses before us today are what... Uh, theologians call a Markan summary. Um, Mark was a literary genius, and he compiled this gospel very purposefully. We've seen a lot of his Markan sandwiches, haven't we? Where he starts a story, and then he interrupts that story with another story, then he returns to finish a story. Uh, we've also seen a few of these Markan summaries, where Mark takes, uh, takes a few verses to recap the events in the section before. He looks back and he summarizes the section. Why? Because he's about to transition into a new section. So, 
So we know that next week we'll be looking at a new section in Mark. We'll, we'll see less miracles and we'll see more interactions again with the Pharisees and with the scribes. Now I'm going to go over this section very briefly. But what I want you to see here is that anyone who comes to Jesus for help receives help. It, it is not just the disciples that can come to Jesus. It is anyone. They arrive at Gennesareth, which is interesting because they had gone to Bethsaida, which was the opposite at the opposite end, probably because the 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 rough waters drove them elsewhere. And they brought the boat ashore and immediately the persistent crowd, the needy crowd, the desperate crowd surrounds them. And by this time, Jesus' fame was so great that people from the entire region began bringing their sick to Jesus so that he could heal them. And as they went into the villages, Jesus healed them, healed all who came to him. The mercy of Christ was in full display. Friends, this is always true of Jesus. He is always available to heal, restore, save, and forgive. He is available now. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's assurance, right? That's assurance that Jesus will not lose any of his own. All that the Father comes to gives to me will come to me. It's a beautiful statement of the assurance that the gospel call is efficient. The good shepherd will lose none of his sheep. But listen to the second half of this passage, of this verse. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. This is assurance that if you will come to Jesus, nothing will separate you from him. There is nothing that will stop you from coming to Jesus with your needs in your hands. Notice that the motivation of the crowd to come to Jesus was an awareness of their need. Mark 2.17, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the pressing question today is, friend, do you think of yourself as righteous apart from Christ? Or do you know yourself as a sinner in need of Christ? Sometimes our self-sufficiency can be our greatest enemy. Strength is not helpful. When we need Christ. I'll be fine. I'm a pretty good person. I, I don't need to come to Jesus. I've never hurt anyone. All while rejecting the Son of God. Who came to forgive you of your sins. My great hope is that as we go through the Gospel of Mark. You will not just see that Jesus lived a remarkable life. But that he lived, not, that, not just that he lived a model life. I don't want you to simply think that Jesus was a great miracle worker, but that these miracles pointed forward to the great miracle that healed not just our diseases, but healed our souls. Friends, our sins have made a separation between us and God, and all that is reserved for us apart from Christ is righteous, just, Wrath from Almighty God. 
But Jesus lived, and we are beholding His life before us. And it was not just remarkable. His life was perfect, sinless. And yet He died. He died a cursed death, but not His death for His sins. It was ours for our sin. And friend, your greatest need is to lay your sin on Jesus today. Just as the crowds brought their sick to be healed by Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you come to me today with your sick soul, I will heal your soul. But Jesus didn't just die. He rose from the death. The great miracle that all these miracles point forward to. And friend, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, this is what Mark wants you to see. Jesus is the Son of God who came to pay for your sins, you too will one day be with Him forever. Would you pray with me? Father, help us see Jesus. Lord, build us our faith so that we may not fear and only believe. Father, help us see the power of Jesus. Yes, in these mundane ways of healing the sick and help us know father that our soul by nature is sick in desperate need of the great physician thank you for christ thank you for displaying him to us this morning we pray in his name amen